0: And I will invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Revelation 13. It has been some weeks now since we have been in Revelation, uh, actually, I believe, about a month between me being out of town and then uh, our topical message and the picnic. So it has been a month, a bit of reminder about where we were. Last week in Revelation 12, there appeared a great wonder in the heaven. A woman clothed in the sun and moon under her feet, and her head had a crown with 12 stars. We observed a woman who we recognized to be Israel. She bore a child who we recognized to be the one who would become the king of kings. That would be Jesus Christ. Uh, A dragon who desired to destroy this child. We saw later on in the chapter that this dragon is said to be The devil, uh, that old serpent, uh, connecting him to Genesis and the serpent that was in the Garden of Eden, recognizing that this is Satan, uh, one who we would recognize to be also named Lucifer, a fallen angel. We saw this dragon as one, if you recall, that had seven heads and ten horns And this dragon sought to destroy the child. When he failed to destroy the child, we saw him cast out of heaven, having been fighting with Michael the archangel. And then knowing his time is short, he dedicated himself to destroying the woman that brought forth the child and destroying her seed. So we understood from this uh, to... Uh, that Israel was going to be the particular target of Satan's wrath in this time. And we found throughout our study that God had prepared a place of protection for the seed of this, or for for the remnant of the seed of this woman, uh, for the nation of Israel. And this protection was to take place for 1,260 days, which we recognized to be 42 months in the prophetic month scale, which is three and one half years. We connected this to Daniel, where we saw the, uh, the events of the little horn, uh, the abomination of desolation, all of these things. The little horn had power for a time, times, and half a time over the, the saints of the Most High. The abomination of desolation took place at the midpoint of the 70th week, or halfway through this set of seven times. All of these things are coming together, right? To see just how important the midpoint of the tribulation, this three and a half year mark, is. That's when we know the abomination of desolation is going to happen. And now we're seeking to connect it to other elements of timing to understand what we're dealing with here. We're going to find more of that this week uh, as we walk through the scope of this chapter and as we walk through several uh, of, of the chapters that are to come. This week we're going to see in Revelation 13, two more characters introduced. Two beasts. Both are described quite uh, plainly as beasts. They are distinct beasts, but they are very interrelated. So we pick up in Revelation 13, beginning in verse 1, and the Bible says this, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns and upon his horns ten crowns and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. So John is the one, right? The eye there is John. John is the one seeing this vision. He's been seeing it from the beginning and he sees, the Bible says, he's standing upon the sand of the sea and he sees a beast rise up out of the sea. Now remember when we were in Daniel uh, a while ago now, we saw the four beasts of the Gentile nations and those four beasts of the Gentile nations in Daniel's vision, he says, he saw them rise up out of the sea. And it was specifically out of the sea that those nations rose up. And we compared this to various descriptions of the sea and the land that we've already found in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ uh, and spoke of the possibility that prophetically the sea represents the Gentile world and the land represents um, Israel, or, or the, whether it be the nation or the land of Canaan itself and that there is a possibility of this particular um Interpretive idea. Now, if this is the case, then we would understand this beast arising out of the sea to mean that this particular beast, who we'll find out in a moment is a man, rises out of the Gentile world. He comes out of the Gentile world system, uh, out of what we would understand to be the Roman world or the Western world empire. Now, we'll know this to be true. We'll know him to be a Gentile, even if, he, even if the sea does not represent the Gentile world. But the reason why I bring up this, again, is not just as an interpretive possibility, but because in just a moment, this second beast that we're going to study, the Bible says that when John sees him, he is going to come up from the earth, not from the sea. And that might help us as well as we seek to understand the nature and the relationship between these two beasts. So, uh, the Bible says that this beast that comes out of the sea, he, that he has seven heads and ten horns, and upon those horns, ten crowns. Now, if you recall in, in Revelation 12, which was just the last chapter, but uh, as, as far as it goes, it was a month ago. Uh, if you recall in Revelation chapter 12, this is an exact description of the dragon, right? The dragon also had seven heads, heads, ten crowns, excuse me, uh, yeah, um, seven heads, ten horns, and ten crowns upon those heads. So it's identical to that description. And to this end, we might be tempted to say, okay, this beast is the dragon. But what we understand is that this is not the case. We'll see that in the next verse, that this is not the dragon. This is someone else, but he has I, as it were, identical makeup framework as the dragon. This beast is described as someone different. Upon these heads, the seven heads representing complete power, right? A head is, is generally the power. When we say that the father is the head of the home or Christ is the head of the church, the idea is that he is the leader. He is uh, um, the, the one with the, the, the power and the authority. So he has seven heads representing a totality of authority, and upon uh, th- these heads were these crowns and these horns. These horns, of course, we've seen from Daniel, represent kings. The crowns represent authority. So as th- just as Satan had complete authority over the entire world system, and he was using ten kings in order to bring this about, and these ten kings had authority over ten kingdoms, so too we see that this This beast, who we'll find in just a moment, once again, to be the 11th horn of Daniel, this beast is also wielding authority over the entire system, this entire world system, and he is wielding authority over these 10 horns or these 10 kingdoms and their authority. So he's at the very top of this system. And notice how it describes his heads. It says, Upon his heads." the name of blasphemy. By this we understand the beast to be a man of, uh, of evil and profanity and blasphemy. And if you, if you recall uh, from Daniel, this is not a foreign description of the one that we know to be the 11th horn. We continue in verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. So some very important things here. First, we see him described as being like a leopard, but with the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. Now, there's a couple of different ways that we can take this. First, we can just take this as a description of his attributes, right? We saw from our study in Daniel that a leopard would generally mean swiftness or speed, that a lion uh, was power and, and, and was might, and that a bear's feet, of course, they're huge, right? They would be very stable. They would be very powerful in and of themselves. But considering our studies in Daniel and seeing just how closely related Revelation and Daniel are, is there anyone that, that, that is comfortable with leaving the interpretation just like that? Or would it be more appropriate for us to take Daniel 7's vision of the four beasts and recognize here that there's a link. Remember, now, I'm going to do these beasts in order. Remember what he saw. First, he saw a lion with wings, and that was Babylon, right? Then he saw a bear that had one side higher than another, and that was the Medo-Persian Empire. Then he saw a leopard with four heads and four wings, and that was the Grecian Empire. And then he saw an indescribable beast. And out of that beast, that beast had ten heads, uh, ten horns, and then an eleventh horn rose out of those ten horns and then that eleventh horn plucked up three of those ten horns do you remember we were talking through all of that it seems very unlikely to me that this beast being described as being a leopard with the, the, the feet of a bear and with the mouth of a lion is just coincidental or attribute or, or speaking of his attributes. It seems very likely that what we are seeing here is a man who encapsulates the very essence of all four great empires of the entirety of the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, of the entirety of the four-beast system. Obviously, he's coming out of the final indescribable beast, but he also bears the marks and the attributes culturally uh, and the distinguishments of all of the great world empires, of Babylon, of Medo-Persia, of the Grecian Empire, of the Roman Empire. So I think that's what we're seeing here. But notice as well, and this is where we see that there's a distinction between The dragon with his seven heads and ten horns and the beast with his seven heads and ten horns because the Bible says that the dragon is the one that gives him this beast power, right? So this is not the dragon because the dragon is empowering this beast. He will have the direct authority of Satan. He will be a, if I can say it this way, an avatar of satanic authority. Satan is uh, certainly a spirit. He is spiritual. He is an angelic being, a fallen angel. And as such, um, he has authority over this world, but he does not have, he's not incarnate. He's not, he doesn't have a body. This beast will become the incarnate power of Satan on this earth. So the world is under Satan's control, and Satan delegates his control to this beast. That's what we're seeing here. Verse 3. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. This verse gives us insight into the character of the beast. We read in verse 3 that one of his heads, he had seven heads, right? One of his heads were, as it were, wounded unto death. Now there is some skepticism, disagreement as to what this means. We have uh, not gotten there yet, but we would interpret this beast to be a man, right? To be the man of sin. We're seeing it as, uh, it's talking about his, um, uh, his, uh, that, that the dragon gave him his power, right? So we're seeing him personified. As we get a little bit farther in the text, we're going to see the personification continue, recognizing that there is going to be a man that will have these attributes now this is not going to be a man with seven physical heads right with ten horns upon that physical head and then ten crowns upon that well what this will be is this will be a a man who symbolically has all of this power but he will be a man and i think that will become more clear as we go along and as we would do so and link this man to the 11th horn of daniel chapter 7 we would regard this beast as antichrist we call him Antichrist. Of course, that term is only used in 1 John, right? In, in 1 Thessalonians, he's called the man of sin. He's called um, uh, the, the son of perdition. All of these terms, terms to relate to a man who will be the embodiment of evil. Now, the world won't see him as that. As a matter of fact, the world will see him as the exact opposite. He'll be a Renaissance man. He'll be a good diplomat. He will be everything that the world craves and is inspired by. But he will be a man of blasphemy against God. So we would understand him to be a, a person, not simply a kingdom or a culture. To that end, many in our camp would, would understand this man of sin to sustain a physical, deadly wound from which he will be healed. Perhaps even a, a death and a resurrection type idea. Um, this, of course, has been popularized by uh, the Left Behind series that was written uh, however long ago now, it's been a while, uh, where the the Antichrist figure uh, was wounded, I don't know, I never read them, um, but he, he, I believe, was wounded and uh, was healed as a physical man. And we'll see a little bit later in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, as a matter of fact, a little later in this chapter, another reason why we might lend ourselves to believe that this was a man who was physically wounded, perhaps until. Death and then was healed from that wound. But as we read the description in verse 3, it seems like that's not quite the case, does it? And the reason why it seems like that's not quite the case is because it says that one of his seven heads was wounded, and we would recognize these seven heads to mean that he had absolute authority. To that end, if we were going to just have this verse in a vacuum and just interpret this one verse, we would not uh, characterize the seven heads as being literal. Rather, we would interpret those as being the seat of his authority or representation of his authority and his power. And to this end, wounding one of his seven heads would not necessarily imply a physical wound, but rather a, a great threat to, his, to the extent of his power and the extent of his authority, Right? That there's going to perhaps be some great rebellion against his authority, or there's going to be some, um, some major resistance to him, and that with, with decisiveness and with skill and, uh, with, with the capacity of a great leader, he is going to put down this rebellion. He is going to subdue this great danger, and then he is going to be healed, right? He's going to, to restore his power. So there are these two, Possibilities here. One, that he actually sustains a physical wound and and, and is healed. The other, that there is a great threat or a great wounding of his authority that he is able to overcome. Uh, Verse 4 is going to lend itself to the idea that his authority has been threatened. A little bit later in the chapter, um, uh, in verse 14, we're going to see something that might lend itself to the idea that he himself was wounded. And is healed. But either way, uh, he's going to be healed, and and the world is going to see this as something incredible, something uh, perhaps miraculous. And we know that he is going to be a very spiritual person. Uh, He's going to be heavy into uh, um, uh, the occult arts and witchcraft and these sorts of things. We know that from from Daniel. And so, this is going to be a man um, who is going to represent great power, and that power is going to become evident at this time. Either way, he is going to become a man of tremendous fame and influence. And we continue in verse 4. The Bible says, And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast who is able to make war with him? So through his influence, a man of blasphemy and evil... The world will be encouraged to worship the dragon that empowers the beast and the beast himself. Of course, the dragon is Satan, so the world will be openly, abjectly worshiping Satan, and then they will worship this man as well. We are seeing the proliferation of uh, politicians and and leaders as figures of worship. This is not anything new. Uh, Leaders in in countries have always been figures of worship among people, Uh, so there will be this influence to worship Satan. Now, what form will this take? Will it actually be uh, a Satanism? Probably not, um, but possibly. Will it be some perverse false religious claims? to worship God, but actually worshiping false gods. Of course, Satan is the head. That's possible. Will it root itself in some neo-paganism, things like the eco-movement and Marxist co- concepts of cultural identity and such? That's possible as well. It could even be a merging of all of these things. There's a great deal of debate about what this, um, this final ecumenical pagan religion will look like, but, but this one thing will be clear. They will be worshiping Satan, the dragon, And they will be worshiping this man who is empowered by the dragon. Notice the spirit of this age, the tone of the world's view of the beast. They'll ask, who is likened to the beast? We've never seen anyone like this, they'll say. Who is able to make war with him? And this is perhaps why we might believe that one of these heads that was wounded is some sort of geopolitical issue that he, he puts down quickly. Because they're saying, who's able to war with him? Who's able to go against him? Perhaps it is that the great force comes against this this world leader and he puts it down like that. And they say, wow, no one can compete with this guy. No one can come against this guy. Who is able to make war with him? Verses 5 and 6. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. There's our timetable again. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. So as we, as we continue to consider this beast, we find that he has a mouth, the Bible says, speaking great things and blasphemies. If you compare this to the, to the teaching of the man of sin and the son of perdition First Thessalonians, if you compare this to the 11th horn of Daniel chapter 7, if you compare this to the prophecies in Daniel, uh, uh, Daniel 11 as it relates to the end days and the, the um, type-anti-type relationship with Antiochus Epiphanes, as we've talked about already, and the fact that this man is given power to speak these blasphemies for 42 months, it, it all just falls into place, right? We know who this man is. He opens his mouth and blasphemies against God. He blasphemes God's name. He blasphemes God's tabernacle. He blasphemes the faithful who have gone before. And and this is the eleventh horn of Daniel. Recall what we what we studied in Daniel chapter seven, beginning in verse 20. The Bible says, "In the ten horns that were in his head, and of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, that would be the eleventh horn and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. Skipping to verse 25. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time, a times, and a dividing of time. Three and a half times. The 11th horn is said to speak very great things, to speak great words against the Most High. Now we'll talk in a moment about the characteristic of the horn that he wears out the saints of the Most High. This would also correlate, as I mentioned, to the description of the man of sin in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 2nd Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. But notice as well the timing, this timing element. These things will be given him for a time of times and a dividing of time. When we interpret this, the way we interpret this, and we've already substantiated why we interpret it this way, that would be three and a half times, which we believe to be three and a half years, which is 42 months, which prophetically is 1,260 days. Do you recall that just a moment ago in, Revelation, in, in this chapter, in Revelation 13, we just read that the beast will allowed to, be allowed to say these things for 42 months? Three and a half years. That's why we believe this to be Antichrist. It all fits perfectly with what the Bible has taught us already about this man of sin. And remember that all of this is happening now as we continue to try to discern timing. I've told you about these different series of timing and why they believe what they believe. But, but why we are generally convinced that, that all of these things will begin at the midpoint of the tribulation. Uh, uh, and that that's at the midpoint of the 70th week and, and this is why because all of these things though they are being presented somewhat um, topically are being presented within the scope of the 7th trumpet now this is not a clear cut uh, uh, case because we're going to see some things over the next couple of weeks presented within the scope of the 7th trumpet that will also extend to the very end of the of the 70th week but It lends itself, when we are interpreting plainly, to this interpretation. If we take the Bible at face value, if we interpret it plainly, it isn't an open-shut case by any means, but it is a very consistent, literal interpretation that these things are happening, that that the beginning of this 42-month stretch of power starts with the abomination of desolation, and that for the next 42 months, until the end of the 70th week, Antichrist has power. His true power, his true rev- the, the revelatory power of his system and of his might begins at the abomination of desolation at the midpoint and, and extends to the end. And that's, generally speaking, what we believe as we try to put Scripture with Scripture together and, and combine it all. Verse 7. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Uh, Now we just read the same description in Daniel 7, right? speak great words against God, given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. That's what it said in Daniel 7. That's what it says in Revelation 13, verse 7. This is the same man. This is the 11th horn. This is the man of sin. And not only that, but he'll be given power over all kindreds and over all tongues and over all nations. So he will have ultimate power over the earth as we connect this with the prince that shall come in Daniel 9 and the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2. This is Antichrist, empowered directly by the dragon, by Satan himself, and given power over the world. Note that this does not mean that every kingdom will be happy under his power. We see from Daniel 11, when we studied that, that there will be a king from the north and that there will be the kings of the east that will compete with Antichrist, that will trouble him. And we'll talk more about that when I was gone, the week I was gone. Um, Brother Hansen spoke on Gog and Magog, and we're going to be bringing that up. Uh, 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 Gog of Magog, and, and this is the king... of. Uh, uh, what, what about Gog of Magog, and what about the king of the north? And then who are these kings of the east? And we're going to see that, take, uh, that uh, be particularly important as we get toward the, the, the day of Armageddon and uh, the valley of Megiddo and what is going to take place there. So this leader will, regardless of whether or not everyone likes it, have power over, generally speaking, the entire world. He will do that which many men have tried, but none have been able to fully accomplish. Alexander the Great tried. Napoleon tried. Charlemagne tried. Hitler tried. But this man will effectively succeed at creating this singular empire. Verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The earth will worship the dragon and the world will worship the beast. But notice the clear line that is drawn here. That part of the world will not worship the dragon or the beast. The part of the world whose name is written in the book of the Lamb of, uh, of, that was slain. The part of the world that will worship the dragon and the part of the world that will worship the beast is the part of the world whose names are not written in the book of the Lamb. That would be the book of life. That would be the book that says who is a believer and who is not, who has accepted Christ as their Savior and who has not. There will, therefore, as we understand it, be a remnant who will not be deceived, who will not worship this man, who will not worship the dragon that empowers this this man. We're going to talk about that more in a moment as we get into this second beast. But there is a breakup between the first and the second beast in verses 9 and 10. The Bible says, if any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. What does this mean? The text calls for those who have ears To hear. This statement is used throughout the Bible to call those with spiritual discernment to perk their ears and to engage their minds. It is a signal uh, that what is being said in the text is something that the writer or the speaker would expect to generally be misunderstood or misinterpreted by those who are listening if they are not really. Thinking if they're not comparing scripture with scripture, if they are not allowing the spiritual discernment uh, to to be at the forefront of their reading on this topic. So it was when we studied the history of the churches, right? The the uh, the letters to the churches at the beginning of the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the end of each of these churches, he says, he said to each church. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Perk your ears. Think about what he's saying here, because there's something to this. Jesus would also use this in Matthew 24, when he warns them against the abomination of desolation, right? Because all of the Jews thought the abomination of desolation had already taken place some 200 years earlier with Antiochus Epiphanes. And so as Jesus is writing, he says, when ye see future the abomination of desolation sitting in the temple... He who has an ear, let him hear. Take note of this. The abomination of desolation has not yet happened. Right? He's perking their minds to to exercise their spiritual discernment, to understand a spiritual topic. And that is what's happening here. And the statement that, that we are supposed to hear is first off understanding who this beast is. We've already connected him spiritually to the 11th horn. And then secondly, these, this statement in verse 10. They that lead into captivity will go into captivity. They that kill by the sword must be killed by the sword. This is a principle found throughout the Bible it roots itself in the principle that we call the sowing and reaping principle. We read a similar statement in Jeremiah 152 we'll get there in just a couple weeks and it shall come to pass in our evening sermon is what I mean and it shall come to pass if they say unto thee whither shall we go forth then shalt thou tell them thus saith the Lord such as are for death to death and such as are for the sword to the sword and such as are for famine to famine and such as are for captivity to captivity The principle is made more clearly by Jesus himself in Matthew Matthew chapter 26, verse 52, where Jesus said, put again thy sword into his place, speaking to Peter, for they that shall take the sword shall perish with the sword. This is not a statement saying that everyone who fights must die fighting. That would be the pagan principle of karma, right? And the pagan principle of karma is a a, a sin-motivated distortion of the sowing and reaping principle in the word of God. That any physical act begets a physical reaction in this world, either negative or positive. The sowing and reaping principle, however, actually speaks about how our physical actions affect spiritual outcomes, not physical outcomes. Sure, the man who carries the gun is more likely to die by the gun. Sure, the man who hurts others is more likely to be hurt by others. But the principle is not that. The principle goes deeper. And it's perhaps best seen in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 where he said this, Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be meted to you again. This is the same principle, only dealing with the spiritual concept of judgment rather than the physical concept of war. Spiritually speaking, God treats us in the same manner that we treat others, that those who judge others will be judged by that same standard. Now, this is not warning about salvation. Salvation is not about judgment. God has already placed that judgment on Jesus Christ, right? Jesus has already been judged unto salvation or damnation. So this cannot be about salvation. It cannot be that, that God is going to judge me if I judge others unto damnation, perdition in, in a sinner's hell, because that has nothing to do with me. Whether or not I go to heaven has nothing to do with me judging or not judging, with my temperament, with my worthiness. Jesus Christ was judged on the cross for the sin of the world, and all who place their faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ will go to heaven, and all who do not place their faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ will not go to heaven. He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's John 3, 18, excuse me. So that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about how God will treat man in judgment. How, uh, how, how mercy will be meted out. And as we talk about those things, it boils down to those who judge will be judged that the standard by which I judge others is the standard by which God will judge me. That the mercy with which I give others is the mercy with which God will give me. That they who hold captive will be held captive. That they who kill with the sword will be killed by the sword. The point is, and, and the point as it relates to Revelation chapter 13, verse 10, is this. He says there right at the end, here is the patience and the faith of the saints. What does that mean? This is our hope. Our hope is that they that take up the sword, will die by the sword. Our hope is that they that hold captive will be held captive. What is our expectation? Our expectation is that as Christians around the world are sitting in jail cells for their faith, our expectation is that as Christian, Christians around the world are being killed for their faith, they go to death not resisting evil with this expectation in mind that those who kill the, 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 those who kill the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ will be avenged by God one day that vengeance will fall upon them that I'm not avenging myself that I'm not barricading this church and putting guns at every at at every window uh, against those who would seek to come against the, the followers of Jesus Christ because that is God's job to avenge me that that is God's job to recompense evil upon the evil that's not my job that's not even my right that's the patience of the saints. So Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. This is the idea behind Revelation chapter 13, verse 10. That the hope of the saints, the patient of the saints, the thing that keeps us going, the thing which keeps a believer going, is not that well, thank you, Lord. I get to be the doormat of the world and be killed by people for no reason, just for my good works. And, and, and this is, I just, have to, I just have to suck it up. Well, no. It's that one day God is going to avenge me and God can do a better job than ever I can. Than ever I can. Than ever I can. In the face of any number of distresses and persecutions and sorrows and unkindnesses, vengeance is the Lord's. Now, uh, uh, lest I sound disingenuous in this, obviously in this country, we're not persecuted for our faith. You get doors slammed in your face. You might not get a job. We have a few bakers that are being shut down because they won't bake cakes for sodomite weddings. And those are our persecutions, but we're not talking about what they're going through in Syria right now, what they're going through in Egypt right now. We're not talking about our houses being burned to the ground with us in it. We're not talking about people destroying families, killing mother and father, selling daughters into sex slavery, and selling the boys' organs on the black market. That's what's happening to Christians in Syria. That's what's happening to Christians on other parts of the world. So, as we say this, we, we don't try to pretend as though we're... There in this country right now. But this is the patience of the saints. This is our hope that God is watching. And whether now, in in some senses, it's almost easier when martyrdom becomes a real thing to because you've got nothing left to hope in. It's a little bit harder to not avenge yourself when it's a first-world problem. It's a little bit harder to not seek vengeance upon those who would seek to hurt you or your family when vengeance is much, much easier to come by. The Syrian Christians, they don't really have much of a recourse. We do. It's much easier for us to take vengeance, isn't it? And so it might actually be harder for us to apply these concepts than maybe even those that are over there without any other recourse but to trust the Lord and say God will be my vengeance. So this is the context within which we're finding this here. This is the patience of the saints. This is the faith of the saints. This is about those who will be living life under the man of sin. Society will turn violently towards Satan and against God. There will be a time of great tribulation such as the earth has never seen. It will be the worst time in recorded history for a person to be a follower of Christ. And that's saying something. If you read about the inquisitions of the Catholic Church against the true followers of Jesus Christ and the things that they did to them, if you read about what the Roman Empire before the legalization of Christianity did to Christians... It be a very difficult time. And this is why we find these verses in this passage, squeezed between the first beast and the second beast. Because the first beast is Antichrist, the second beast is going to amplify Antichrist. He is going to point people to Antichrist, and he is going to be a terrible person as well. We see this beginning in verse 11. And I beheld another beast, notice this, coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb and he spake as a dragon. So John views another beast and notice he comes out of the earth. This is where that distinction causes us to wonder what is the sea and what is the earth, right? Because the first beast came out of the sea. The four beasts in Daniel came out of the sea but this beast comes out of the earth. Within the scope of the revelation itself we have only seen as it relates to the earth and the sea the angel with the little book standing with one foot on the sea and one foot on the earth. But if the interpretation is correct that the sea is the Gentile world and the earth is the nation of Israel or generally that area, that region, then what we might understand, and if you've ever heard this before, is you've heard prophecy that the false prophet will be a Jew. That's why they believe that. That's why they believe that this second beast will be perhaps a Jew, that he will be positioned in place to take the apostate remnant of the, of the nation of Israel, the that remnant that, that the Bible says will be there, that there will be a great falling away, a great apostasy is what that word means. And that's quite possibly a falling away of, Jew, uh, uh, of the nation of Israel toward Antichrist, believing him to be Messiah and then the, the other remnant of Israel recognizing that this is not Messiah, this is the Antichrist, this is the 11th horn of Daniel, and fleeing where they're protected by God for 42 months. But it's quite possible, if this interpretation is true, that it would substantiate the idea that there is a, a remnant of, of apostate Jews and that this false prophet, this second beast, comes from them. The, the fact that he comes out of the earth is one of the the reasons why people believe this. So if you hear that, if you, if, if you hear that in prophetic teaching, that's kind of where that prophetic concept comes from. So he's described as having two horns like a lamb, but speaking as a dragon. We might see in this a contrast where he appears to be gentle. Perhaps he appears to be very religious. And he perhaps appears to be, if he's a Jew, very messianic, looking for the Lamb of God. But he's speaking like a dragon, but he is actually stating his loyalties to Satan, to the man of sin. Verse 12, and he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth and them which dwell in the earth to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was Healed. So the role of the second beast is understood only as it relates to the first beast. The second beast will serve to exercise the power of the first beast. He will cause the earth to worship the first beast. His emphasis will be upon the deadly wound which was healed, whatever that wound might be. So the second beast will function as a channel to point to the first beast. He is not as much interested in his own glory as much as he is reflecting and highlighting the glory of the first beast. Now, we don't have it in this chapter, but as we continue, we'll find that his title is called the false prophet. And we've spoken before about the makeup of Satan's counterfeit kingdom. One of the first messages I preached in the series way back in January through March of this of this year was one of those messages was highlighting that Satan is creating a counterfeit kingdom Whereby he wants to mimic all of the attributes of God's kingdom, right? And he and we have this counterfeit kingdom that is is uh, um, throughout history running parallel with God's kingdom and in competition to God's kingdom. And here we begin to see the fullness of the similarities. Within the scope of this counterfeit system, we have a dragon, we have a first beast, and we have a second beast. And the the, the dragon is the one who has the authority and who, who who is setting the the agenda. He is the will. And then we have this the first beast who is. The one who is empowered by the dragon to accomplish the will of the dragon. he is he, All of the authority of the dragon is handed down to the first beast to accomplish the will of the dragon. And then we have the third beast who wants no attention to himself, but whose function is to is to use signs and wonders and the powers that have been given to him by the dragon in order to draw attention and glory to the first beast. Does this sound familiar? This is an unholy trinity that mimics the divine trinity. A God who is the Father, who is the one who has the power and who is the will of the Trinity, giving power to the second person of the Trinity, who is the Son of God, who is the enactor of God's will all the way back to creation. He is the one who is using, who, is, who has been given authority by the Father to enact the will of the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, whose function is not to draw attention to himself, but rather to draw attention through, through his power, through the power that the Holy Spirit rots in this world to draw attention and power and glory and honor to the second person of the Trinity who is the Son. And so we consider this to be what we call the unholy trinity. Satan is creating this counterfeit kingdom. And as this kingdom is coming into some sort of shape at the end of this uh, 70th week, we are seeing the unholy trinity take shape with a mimicking of of the first, the second, and the third persons of the trinity in this unholy form. Verse 13. Speaking of the, the, this, this second beast. And he doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. Interesting, right? The Bible says that Elijah will come before Messiah, one of the foremost accounts of Elijah is when Elijah stood against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And they had a competition as to who could call down fire from heaven. And the prophets of Baal tried and tried and tried and there was no, no, no capacity. And then Elijah said, take that, take that, that uh, altar and, 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 and dig a trough around it. Pour water on the altar until that trough is full. And then he prayed to the Lord and fire came down from heaven and consumed the water and consumed the sacrifice and consumed everything. If this man is Jewish and if he is attempting in a messianic way to say Antichrist is Messiah, having placed himself on the throne in in, in the temple in Jerusalem, as we know the abomination of desolation is going to do from Matthew 24 then all of the apostate Jews who who will be deceived by him will look and say, this is Elijah that shall come. Look, he even called down fire from heaven, just like Elijah did. So by means of these miracles, the earth will be deceived. He will do great wonders. And through it, they will make an image of, of the first beast and here notice this which had a, the wound by a sword and did live this is the verse that lends people to believe that this man himself was wounded because a nation can't necessarily be wounded by the sword unless we're talking about a battle I suppose we could talk about a battle but this is the idea that lends people to believe that the man himself was wounded and that he was healed I still don't lend myself as much to that interpretation as I would because it's one of his heads that's wounded but Whatever, e- either way, this is the man, right? It's the man that was wounded and was healed. And notice that this, this, this healing, whether it's geopolitical or whether it's physical, is still the great emphasis by which this false prophet gets up and he says, this is the Messiah. This is the one. We need to worship this one. This is God. And he will encourage the world to create an image to worship this, the first beast, verse 15, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So um, once this image is made, the second beast, the false prophet, will have power to give life unto this image. This uh, image will speak. It will destroy those who refuse to worship it. We'll talk more about that in a few moments as we finish the chapter uh, um, Uh, after we finish the chapter. Let's go ahead and finish in verses 16 through 18. And he causeth, and this this is the false prophet, he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that hath the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man... And his number is 600, three score and six. A score is 20, three score is 60. This is 666, 666, right? We're all familiar with that number and the satanic uh, association with it. Ironically, it is not the number of Satan, is it? It's the number of man. And it's the number of the Antichrist. The number six, of course, is a number that falls just short of the number seven. Seven is the number of divine perfection and completion, showing that man, for all of his attempts, is yet falling short of divinity. Now, there are any number of ways and number of attempts to interpret the nature, both of the image which was created and the mark of the beast. As uh, time continues and as history continues, uh, the nature of this image as it's created comes into question. Is this actually a physical statue that is created of this man and then uh, is then at some point enlivened? Um, That is possible. But it is also not difficult to think of the image of the beast as being some sort of Uh, artificial intelligence ideas, something technological, something that would be able to track and seek and destroy by listening and parsing all communication networks upon the earth. We're not that far off from such ideas. It's not difficult to think of the idea of the mark of the beast not just being as some physical symbol on the hand or on the forehead, but as uh, some sort of microchip technology, things that companies have already implemented to secure access to vital systems within their companies. And to this end, of course, course, Christians are noticeably and vocally oftentimes concerned, uh, often, uh, other times opposed to things such as microchipping in humans and uh, even the, the, the dangers that can come with a I as it becomes a G-I as it becomes a S-I, if you're familiar with the concepts. And all of this is fine, all of this is possible, but may I speak to this a little bit here as, as a means by which to balance The mark of the beast is not just going to be an obvious thing. The mark of the beast, as Revelation speaks of it, will be a deliberate thing. May I say that again? The mark of the beast will not just be obvious. The mark of the beast, as it's stated in the Scripture, will be 100% deliberate. It's not as if there's going to be a system in place which is seemingly innocent and innocuous, which is used only for... Uh, for the purposes of convenience and then one day they're going to flip a switch and say, surprise, everyone has the mark of the beast. It's not going to be like that. 100% certain it's not going to be like that. It is not as if. If we start microchipping ourselves to get ourselves into our homes and to get ourselves into our cars, one day we're all just going to wake up and someone's going to tell us, oh, by the way, the serial number on every one of those microchips is 666. You're all stuck. Sorry, we got you. It's not like that. Okay? It's not going to be like that. The mark of the beast. From the very design of the unholy trinity, we must understand that the mark of the beast will not be some trickery or subversive idea. It will be deceit, and that people will be deceived into worshiping the beast. People will de- be deceived into worshiping the, the dragon, but when people take the mark of the beast, it will be a bold statement that this is God. They're going to be making a choice here. You take the mark and you acknowledge Antichrist and the dragon to be God or you don't take the mark. It's not going to be a trick. It's not going to be something uh, that's going to be subversive. They're not going to trick all the Christians into into taking the mark and then tell them, surprise, you've got the mark. It's not going to be like that. To that end, while we can see in various technological improvements potential vehicles through which say the mark of the beast or the image that is animated potential vehicles through which these things can come the technologies themselves are not evil okay just because it might be a medium through which this evil will come we don't have to fear the technology itself now that doesn't mean you have to microchip yourself there's lots of other reasons to fear that, primarily government surveillance and, and this fast-dissipating this, this concept of privacy, right? There's lots of other reasons to fear or to be skeptical of these technologies, but I don't think the, the fear of the mark of the beast needs to be one of them. That's not how this is going to work. There's going to be a day where each person has a choice, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the day where... where King Nebuchadnezzar made the image and said, when the sound of the music plays, you either bow and you worship the image or you don't. And there's some that will bow. And, there, and, and, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they did not. They were not tricked. It was not a trick. It was not a, let us bow in prayer to the Lord. And then as they bowed, poof, you know, the, the, the curtain fell and there was an image there. and oh, We made you worship the image. It wasn't like that, right? They had a choice to make worship it, don't worship it. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't trying to, 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 to subvert his purposes, to disguise what he wanted. He wanted them to worship him as God. And he said, worship me as God. And, and, and the nation chose to worship him as God. On the day that the mark of the beast becomes a thing, and if we take the timing properly, it's not going to become a thing until halfway through. Ish. Ish. Right? This is not going to be day one of the 70th week if our timetable holds. On that day, it's not going to be a a, a tricky, subversive, deceitful type situation where people are going to take it and then not know what they've done. What have I done? I didn't realize it. They are going to know exactly what they're doing. They are going to take this mark and by taking this mark, they are going to be overtly, knowingly, definitively proclaiming that this beast and the dragon are God. Okay? So, while this... Technology is terrifying as it relates to privacy, as it relates to liberty. I don't believe we need to fear these technologies in themselves, but rather see them as signs of the times, signs of that which may come. We're already in a world where privacy is only as strong as the honesty and integrity of those who hold our information, whether it's credit card companies. Internet service providers, search engines, email providers, phone companies, even automobile manufacturers. You know, they've got GPS and all those things in in the cars today. A lot of them can even remote start from GPS now. We're living in a world where people in power can learn just about anything they want about the majority of us where we go, how we spend our money, what we eat, our emotional condition, our medical condition, our spiritual state. Add to this a strong centralized government like we read about in the 70th week of Daniel and things are going to be very terrifying indeed. But these, in and of themselves, cars with GPS chips and phones that are tracking us and listening to everything that we say and all this stuff that's already a reality... All of the, the power that Google has, that Facebook has, that, these, that Twitter has, that these large companies have over the, the, the data, the only thing stopping people from knowing everything about us is that there's just such a vast quantity of data that there's no technology yet created that can possibly store or analyze that much data. And all of that's terrifying in its own right, but they aren't the mark of the beast, They might be the vessels through which the mark of the beast is empowered or enforced, but they aren't themselves the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is not something mankind will adopt in ignorance. The mark of the beast will be deliberately, willingly adopted, knowing full well what it means. And if I might just caution you in this regard, the elements of Antichrist and the mark of the beast are some of the most talked about things out there in prophetic circles People do their research, and they see where things are going. We talked today about AI. Everything has got AI. Our phones have AI. Our cars have AI. I just saw a drill the other day that had AI. Um, and it's, it's a drill. Uh, what are you doing putting a microchip in it, right? But... Uh, th- th- that's not the end, right? The, the, the next step is, is artificial general intelligence. AI is where something can learn how to do something really, really well. One thing, though, artificial general intelligence is the quest where computers can learn in any number of areas at once, uh, where a computer can learn any number of tasks really well, not just one task. You know, they've got a computer that can beat the world's best chess player, but ask him to do anything other than chess, and, and, and it can't do anything, right? It's, 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 it's AI is, is fitted for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to learn how to play chess. What they want is is the next step is artificial general intelligence, where a computer can learn numerous tasks and numerous tasks to do really well to generate intellectual capacities among many different applications of study. And that's where we're trying to get to right now. And then the final step in this along the artificial intelligence road is what's called artificial superintelligence, A-S-I. And ASI is a time when computers will actually be faster and smarter than the human brain in practically every application of study. And this is where people begin to talk about computers replacing man and, and try, people trying to infuse their consciousness into machines so that we can be immortal and all of these different concepts which, as far as the Bible is concerned, will never come to pass. So we don't really have to worry about that in, in its fullest regard. But as people see these things coming, there's a natural realization that technology is a means through which mankind can aspire unto divinity. We will build ourselves a tower into the heavens, right? Man used technology to try to aspire unto divinity, and it's happening again. And as Babel is being reversed, this is what we're seeing. Mankind is seeking to overcome the curse. He's seeking to overcome uh, all of these things in any number of ways. Uh, the language barrier of Babel. Overcome the scarcity of food and the, and the difficulties of, of, of weeds as it relates to farming and stuff that is being overcome. Uh, these are things which exist in, in, in the realm of possibility. Our lifespans are increasing as technology increases, allowing us to do things such as not just replace organs, but now they're attempting to grow organs and to replace vital organs. Uh, so, so we're seeing so many of the elements of the curse that are being overcome. And what this does bring to our mind, it should not necessarily cause us to fear that we're going to be deceived into taking a mark. That, that, that's, that's not biblically sound interpretation. But what is, is this. That as we see human progress, this is our application today, as we see human progress, it bears all the marks of Christ's return, doesn't it? What we're witnessing in the world is, as I mentioned, the undoing of Babel. An undoing of the limitations of the curse that it was imposed upon mankind, a rejection and an overthrow of, if you will, of the natural consequences of mankind's rebellion against God, first in the garden, then at Babel. And while all of this uh, is, is quite overwhelming, it's not unanticipated scripturally. We went uh, several sermons ago to Daniel, right? And we talked about Daniel chapter 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, Daniel 11, Daniel 12. And and, and as it relates to Daniel 12, uh, Daniel 12 described the coming and establishment of God's kingdom. And we only read the first couple of verses on that day. I want to read those again to you in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. The Bible says this, And at that time, this is the time of the end, Shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as, as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. So a time of trouble for Israel, right? That's, that's the great tribulation. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Verse 4. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. So Daniel was told to shut up and seal the book until the time of the end. The idea here is not that he did not you know, write his work, but the idea is that the revelation that God gave in these last uh, chapters of Daniel would not fully be understood until the time of the end, until we are getting close to that time. And uh, as we get closer to that time, we would expect that the book of the Revelation and the book of Daniel will become clearer to those who are studying it with, with honesty and sincerity, it will become clearer to us because we will be seeing the things worked out in our lives. But notice the description of the time of the end many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. We talked about this briefly uh, at the beginning of our, our series. Um, we are in, a, in an, un, uh, an unprecedented time in history. Um, There's no record of human achievement that can match what has taken place in the last 150 years that we know of. Perhaps the technology pre-flood, which we don't know about, those people were probably pretty amazing. When you have a thousand years to perfect your craft and you have uh, brains that are um, not as affected by the curse as ours are, um, what, 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 what things may they have accomplished? But as far as recorded history is concerned, we, we have not seen anything like we've seen in the past 150 years of human history. Um, transportation is easier than we've ever seen it before. The capacity to get around the world. What about knowledge increasing? So in, in, in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, they're reading Daniel, and they say, Man shall run to and fro and they'll say, okay, we get that one, right? Automobiles and airplanes, and these things are starting. Not like we have them today, but these things are starting. But the knowledge shall increase part. They probably would have pointed back to the Gutenberg press of the late 1400s and how that information revolution took place. But they didn't understand anything like what we now know with the advent of the Internet. The Internet has brought about an information revolution that that Gutenberg could not have even fathomed the capacity for people to have at, their, at, at the tip of their, 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 their fingertips all of the knowledge of mankind, all of our collective knowledge, fake or otherwise, all at, at, at our fingertips, at any moment of the day, in my pocket, anywhere I want to go, I can, read, I can read anything I want. I can learn anything I want. I can sit on, you, you, you know, it used to be you had to go to a great university. I can sit under Harvard lectures in my pajamas, in my office, watching YouTube. I can sit under some of the greatest te- I can listen to, the, to sermons from the, from the greatest preachers uh, of this generation that are all around the world anytime I want talk about a time where knowledge shall be increased. And you see what it's saying? This is sealed up to the time of the end. And as we get closer, we're going to understand this better. We're going to understand the revelation better. And I say all of that in order to say this. The Bible did not fail to anticipate the things that we see today. The Bible did not fail to take into account a time when humans would travel in a way civilization never had before. The Bible did not fail to take into account the the technological revolution and the increasing of knowledge. Now, does that mean the Lord is coming today? No, it could be another 500 years. Does that mean he could come today? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. To this end, while we should always be wise and discerning as it relates to these things, Or we should always seek to understand God's will within the context of society and culture. We do not need to live in fear. We need to live in motivation. The time is coming. The Lord is coming. Things are happening. And because we know this, we need to stay busy. If you're not on God's side, if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, he could come today. It's time to choose. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ but you're, you're living in apathy or you're living in, 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 in some stagnant way or you're being driven and bound by the fear, maybe, maybe prophecy has always caused you to be so fearful, fearful of the mark of the beast, fearful of these technologies and you're living in this fear. You don't have to live in fear. God, God did not fail to anticipate these things, and God has has provided for us the means by which to use this world without abusing this world. The mark of the beast will not be some strange deceit. It will not—I mean, it will be a deceit in, in the spiritual deceit, but it's not just going to be. You're, you're not going to wake up in the morning and someone's tattooed a six-six-six on your hand, and, and and oh no, you know it's not going to be like that, right? So we don't have to be afraid understand what's going on, be wise, be discerning, but let's just keep serving the Lord. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.